Welcome to Beautiful Baggage, confidence, wellness, and wisdom through travel and everyday adventure. I'm Stephanie Martin-Taylor, your guide to this podcast journey. Thanks for joining me. Hello, and thank you for joining me. I'm so happy you're here. Hope you're staying safe and well. Before I get started, I just wanted to remind you to check out my free mini coaching session offer for people who haven't worked with me before, but would like to try working with a certified life coach. I specialize in helping people who are quiet in some aspect of their lives, are feeling shy in some aspect of their lives, but I also coach on all kinds of other things too. It's not a, um, a requirement by any means to, to try out life coaching. So if you're interested, email me, stephanie at yourbeautifulbaggage.com is the email address, stephanie at symbol yourbeautifulbaggage.com. And we can see if setting up a 20-minute coaching session for free would be right for you. This episode is all about getting out of your own way. For those of us who dream of living an adventure-filled life, one of the biggest obstacles to doing that is our own self-talk, what's going on in our own minds. It's often so automatic, we're not even aware of just how much we are ruminating and spinning on thoughts that might not even be true. They're called cognitive distortions. That's what psychologists call them, also known as thinking errors. They feel really true, but all they are, when you take a look at them, is just thoughts. Thoughts like, this might be too hard, or people will judge me. What you're doing might be hard, but you don't know until you try it. It might turn out to be easier than what you think. People might judge you. Judging is what people do. It's a very human trait. But first of all, you can't control what's going on in other people's heads, ever. So getting over that is important. Also, more often than not, they're not even thinking about you at all. (laughs) Or they'll judge you positively. What if you entertain that possibility? When I was in high school, I was in the throes of my most severe shyness. It was really hard for me to raise my hand in class. Parties were agonizing. And I was so frustrated with myself because I didn't know how to fix it. I was convinced the problem was unique to me. But then in an English literature class, I was assigned to read a poem that was quite an eye-opener. For me, it summed up what it felt like to be paralyzed by shyness. The name of the poem, you might have read it in high school or in another time, is The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot. You can find many analyses of the poem online, and if you're interested, I encourage you to do so, and I'll put some on my website so that you can find it. But long story short, the way I read the poem is it's about a man named J. Alfred Prufrock, who walks through the streets of London to a party full of lovely women who, it's clear, he wants to talk with, connect with, maybe marry one of them. He's looking for love, but he's so in his head, he's so full of self-criticism and self-doubt and overanalyzing the situation and how people might respond to him if he speaks or really moves a muscle at all, the result is he's not even really present at the party. And he's also creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. As long as he's 
in these really destructive thought patterns, he has little chance of connecting with anyone because he's already rejected himself in his head so thoroughly. He's likely sending off energy that says, stay away from me, don't get to know me. He's the absolute antithesis of the life of the party. And it's tragic because so many of his thoughts, which is what the poem is, it's just a look inside his mind, so many of his thoughts are cognitive distortions, thinking errors. He imagines that even though he thinks he's dressed himself stylishly and meticulously, it won't matter because everyone will be fixated on his skinny arms and legs. Really? What makes him think that? How does he know that? He imagines that when he speaks, he won't be able to get his point across. Again, really? My judgment of him reading this poem is that he's clearly very smart, educated, and has supreme command of the English language. But he won't allow himself to see that. So he's paralyzed throughout this party, thinking catastrophic thoughts about himself and his life. He's basically looking out into the future and saying to himself, I'm going to grow old with no one to love, no one to love me. One of the lines that just stabs me in the heart when I read it is, I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear my trousers rolled, which my English teacher explained to me in high school that that meant he'd never find a woman who could stitch up his trousers, who could uh, hem his trousers. Now, minor point, what's stopping him from getting his own needle and thread and learning how to sew himself? or finding a tailor to fix his pants. He can figure it out. You don't need a woman to do this. But second of all, it's really unhelpful thinking. And it's our thinking that ultimately creates the way we feel and how we feel creates how we act or don't act. And that determines the results in our lives. So, you know, he's setting himself up for this, again, a self-fulfilling prophecy. My favorite line from the poem, it's actually a question, and it's also the ultimate cognitive distortion is when he's you know, sitting there thinking, do I dare do this? Do I dare do that? Do I speak? Do I eat something? <laughs> Whatever it is he wants to do in this party, but he's so self-conscious. He asks himself the question, do I dare disturb the universe? Do I dare disturb the universe? That's the way he sees any action on his part. His cognitive distortion is he thinks that it will be so awkward, whatever he does, so noticed, so wrong in some way that it will knock the planets off their orbit. At least that's how I read it in high school and I completely identified with it. That really distorted feeling that, you know, if I breathe, if I say something, if I speak up in class, it's going to jolt everyone. And it might, you know, when I would speak up in high school because I was so quiet, Sometimes people would be like, oh, wow, she talks. Oh, my goodness, Stephanie. Look at you. And that was hard. I mean, it was hard to be sort of poked fun of for trying to, to break out of my prison of shyness. But so what? As hard as it is to disturb the universe in this absurd way, the worst that can happen is a feeling. A little bit of humiliation, a little bit of awkwardness embarrassment. But when you're trying to overcome shyness or you're trying to forge a new path for yourself, the only way out is through. You have to experience the negative emotions along with the positive emotions in order to grow. That's what was really lost on me when I was younger. And it's completely lost on this character, J. Alfred Prufrock. For J. Alfred Prufrock and so many others of us who get caught up in thought errors, we fail to see that some of what we think feels so true is actually utterly absurd comical almost. 
But it's also really unfortunate because when left unchecked, thinking this way is a surefire way to contract your own universe to ensure that rather than living life in the present moment, connecting with other people, you're on your own lonely planet trapped in your own head. And then you're completely unaware of other people around you are also human beings and may be experiencing, almost definitely are experiencing their own anxieties and insecurities. If Proofrock focused on them for a moment and what they're saying, these ladies in the room, or not saying, seeing them as fellow human beings, maybe he would be able to offer something they need, a kind word, someone to listen, someone to boost their confidence, someone simply enjoying their company. I mean, there may be a woman there who's worried that she's wearing the wrong thing or that she feels too skinny or too fat or too too this or too that, and she's got her own self-judgments. If I were this man's coach, I would tell him he needs to take a few deep breaths, feel his awkwardness, acknowledge it, befriend it, and then start questioning his thoughts. Start putting things in perspective. This is just a party, just a group of human beings who all have their own insecurities, as I said. Some of what he's worrying about might not be a big deal. So what, he's a little bit skinny? He's got a bald patch on in the back of his head? Big deal. How about focusing on the fact that he's smart, educated, polite, and by his own account, a thoughtful and meticulous dresser? Those are admirable things. If he just shifted his thoughts a little bit and focused, first of all, on good things about himself and also looked more and listened more and felt compassion for his fellow human beings around him, he would get out of his own way. He would most likely not disturb the universe of this ordinary gathering in a negative way, but perhaps, ironically, begin to disturb his own universe, his own life, in a very positive way. By expanding his perspective, he would expand his universe. And that's what's so tragic about this poem, is that it's a cognitive distortion, a thought error, a thinking error, that's keeping his universe small, keeping him unhappy, and keeping him from exposing himself to perhaps some uncomfortable emotions, including rejection. But he's going to have to feel those emotions in order to find the connection he's seeking. Again, the only way out is through. If he can feel humiliation, fully process it, if he can feel disappointment and just sit with it and let it flow through and then put it in perspective, ultimately he'll have the world by the tail because with practice, he can handle those emotions. He'll get more confident. Little moments of embarrassment that we all experience because we're human will roll off of him a lot faster. For me, beginning in high school, I realized that to overcome my shyness, I would have to, quote unquote, disturb the universe, start taking tiny risks. That felt huge and scary. It started with going off to college and making a point of raising my hand in class, in every class, speaking up, offering my opinions. And then the more risks I took, it got easier to take on bigger challenges, like deciding to be a broadcast news anchor and reporter. It's like lifting a weight. First, you start with a very lightweight. For me, again, it was just speaking up, going to more parties, pushing myself out of my comfort zone in very minor ways. And you keep picking up that lightweight, doing repetitions, feeling the pain and the soreness that comes with making effort. You also start to see the benefits. You get stronger. You start to look better, feel better. And that keeps you picking up the weights because you realize, oh wow, this is actually really good for me. And then you pick up a heavier weight and then a heavier weight 
And next thing you know, you've disturbed your own universe in a really great way. An example of a heavier weight I picked up about roughly two decades after reading that poem in high school was as a journalist, I went to a press conference featuring Steve Jobs. I had to go over to Apple headquarters in Cupertino, California, because I'd been assigned to cover something that had gone wrong in the launch of the iPhone 4. A few weeks before I'd seen, I'd been to his keynote address with thousands of people there. I was part of the press corps and when he had talked about this new version of the iPhone, it was like it was the most magical, wonderful thing ever invented. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. And then there was a product defect that became apparent. People's calls kept getting dropped because there was something wrong with the antenna on the side of the phone. And a lot of consumers were really upset to the point where the whole incident was dubbed antenna gate in the tech press. They called it AntennaGate because it was like an Apple product wasn't perfect, and that was a huge scandal. So I was called out to this press conference with Steve Jobs, where he and his other top brass were forced to face the music and answer questions. And at this point, Steve Jobs was definitely kind of at the peak of his iconic status. Whenever he'd walk into a room, people would kind of hold their breaths. You could hear the air go still. He was a really big deal, almost as famous as a person can get. And I realized I had a question to ask as a member of the press corps. Now, I knew someone else would ask the question if I didn't, most likely. So I didn't have to, but I wanted to ask it. And I knew this was also an opportunity for me to have a story to tell (laughs) someday that I interacted with this really famous person. So I was kind of asking myself the equivalent of, do I dare disturb the universe? And it felt like that because tech wasn't really my beat. I covered business at the time, but I wasn't like as um, deeply entrenched in it as many of the other reporters there. They were mostly men, tech bloggers, people who really covered this stuff in detail. You know, I was more of a general assignment business reporter And it was a little intimidating. This wasn't really my crowd. But I asked myself, essentially the question, do I dare? Do I dare disturb the universe? And unlike Prufrock and myself back in high school, I switched my thoughts. I switched my thoughts away from myself, potential embarrassment, the thought that maybe Steve Jobs would be mean to me if I asked this kind of tough question. And I thought, you know, I'm a professional, I'm a journalist, this is my job. And also for all the people who bought iPhone 5s, or iPhone 4s, I'm sorry, I need to think about them and have their question answered. And also, you know, there aren't many women in this room. I should raise my hand and take one for the team, so to speak. So like lifting a really heavy weight, I pushed my hand up into the air. And he called on me. I asked him something to the effect of, at your keynote address a few weeks ago, you were really enthusiastic about the phone, Do you think you oversold it? Do you think you should have tempered expectations a little bit? This is new technology. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, I've thought a lot about that. And then for, I don't know, it felt like an eternity. He looked at me from across the room and went to a very lengthy explanation about why he felt like he hadn't oversold it. And honestly, I don't really remember everything he said because I was like, oh my gosh, Steve Jobs is talking to me, this iconic historic figure 
is looking me in the eye. And, you know, it was very surreal. So, yeah, I did disturb the universe, kind of. But then I didn't. I mean, looking back at the end of the day, I don't think I remember anyone else in that room. I remember one other woman there who asked a question about his health, which was a legitimate question. But everyone else's questions, I don't remember. I don't remember their names. I don't remember the journalists. Don't remember a whole lot about what Steve Jobs said, except that everybody who bought the faulty phone got a free cover for the phone so that it would protect the antenna and make it less likely to drop the call. But in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't a pivotal moment for me as a reporter. I've done many more important stories, but it kind of shows you how your mind can keep you stuck and can make things into a much bigger deal than they really are. I've always been glad I asked the question because one, as a journalist, it was a good question to ask. And two, I gave myself the experience of interacting with this famous person who died a few years later, and this was really my one and only opportunity to have an interaction with Steve Jobs. So my universe, my experience of my career got a little bigger, and I didn't die. He wasn't mean to me. (laughs) He could have been mean to me, I suppose. So my universe, in that one question, that one dare, got a little bigger. I have a story to tell. And yes, it felt uncomfortable and awkward to have Steve Jobs answering my question with a whole room of people looking at me and looking at him. And I was really glad when he moved on to another question, but I'm really proud of myself. And I realized that as someone who, over many years, really had to pull myself out of my shyness step by step, that it took all those other little steps, raising hands in other press conferences, smaller press conferences, with less famous people, less powerful people in smaller communities. It took that practice for me to get to the point where I could raise my hand in a press conference with Steve Jobs and I addressed him as Steve. (laughs) Hi, Steve. That would have been impossible for me years earlier. I'm not one to put up quotes in my office because sometimes they're a little bit stale or overused. A lot of people have the same, same inspiring quote. But the other day I was thinking about the poem the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and I felt inspired to order a little framed quote that says, do I dare disturb the universe? Not as a serious question, but kind of as a tongue-in-cheek question. Something that I can play with when I'm feeling kind of unreasonably afraid. Do I dare when I'm feeling shy, when I'm feeling worried about, you know, with this podcast or a blog post or something else, you know, what will people think? What if somebody doesn't like it? What if I fail? It's a reminder that the worst thing that can happen is a feeling and I'll get through it. It's really not that big of a deal. And it's also for me just a little bit of a dare. It's like saying, what do I dare myself to do today? How do I basically just get over myself, get out of my own head and out of my own way? Whatever's stopping me, seriously, it's probably a cognitive distortion, a thinking error. Someone less sensitive wouldn't even care. And ultimately, if I go through with the dare, I'm going to get stronger, my universe is going to expand, and I'm going to connect with more people and have a greater impact, which is ultimately the point. So I wanted to just leave you today with this question. How can you become more aware of the thoughts that are holding you back? How are you catastrophizing, making your actions, things you want to do, a bigger deal than they might be? When you're asking something akin to, do I dare disturb the universe in a frightened way? in an overly conscious way, take a deep breath and ask yourself, what's the cost? What's the worst thing that can happen? And then what's the potential reward? And how might my universe expand in wonderful ways if I just dare? Thank you so much for joining me on Beautiful Baggage. Go out and disturb the universe. And I will see you next time. 
Take care. Bye.